0: This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. If you want to turn there, it's on page 885 of the Bibles that are in your seats. If you're new here, my name is Brian Russ. I'm an assistant pastor here. Our senior pastor, Wilson Shirley, is away today. He's in Mississippi with his family, visiting their family and attending a special ordination service there for one of his former protégés. So this morning, we're going to, go back to the Gospel of Luke, where we were a few weeks ago, and and finish that out at the end of Luke 24. And what's happening here is that Jesus has risen from the dead, and he has started to show up and make appearances at different places. Last time we uh, were hearing this Gospel, we looked at where Jesus appeared on the road to two of his followers who were walking along the road, and they didn't know it was him, and he began to explained to them from the Scriptures the necessity of him having to suffer and, and to die and to, and to rise again. And for, it was for them and for their salvation. And as he explained those things, they eventually recognized him. And so now we pick up in the, that passage in Luke 24, verse 36. And what happens immediately after that? As he appears to his disciples, the ones closest to him, for the first time, Since he had risen from the dead. Hear now God's word, Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple. Blessing God. That is the reading of God's word for us. Let's pray and ask Him to help us as we look at it. Father, we thank You so much for Your word that it is a light into our path, that it shows us who You are, who Christ is and what He has done for us, who the Holy Spirit is, and how the Holy Spirit works in us to draw us to Christ and to remind us who we are in Him. We pray this morning that as we study Your Word, as we hear it proclaimed, as we listen to it, Lord, that it would break through, uh, and not just into our minds, but into our hearts, and then be worked out um, through our hands, through the, the everyday life that we live, that we would bring glory and honor and praise to You for all you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think for a moment about the time you had to say goodbye to someone. It could be, you know, something like you were moving somewhere, maybe uh, to a new city. I don't know anyone who's done that recently. But one of my favorite times when I think about goodbyes, I, I go back in time to 8th grade at Lexington Middle School in Lexington, South Carolina. And what had happened uh, then was that they had built a new school because of the high school it was getting crowded and that sort of thing. And so they, we were in Lexington Middle School, and they had built this other middle school called White Knoll Middle School. And what they were going to do for that next year, because of some of the crowding in the schools, is those who were in 8th grade were going to stay in middle school another year for ninth grade. Uh, and so, one group was going to stay at Lexington Middle School, and the other group was going to go to White Knoll Middle School. And then, in the tenth grade, we would come back together at Lexington High School. Is everybody with me? So naturally, since that was happening, uh, that really just threw everybody for a loop. So we had to have an assembly. And y'all know what school assemblies are like. You know, everybody's there together, and this assembly—it was like the equivalent of some day of mourning, because. Everyone was going, oh, no, you know, we've been together, and now we're being split apart for a whole year. And so naturally what happened is they, they had two, two people got up there, and one of the girls was going to Lexington Middle School the next year. The other one would be going to White Knoll Middle School. And they sang Friends are Friends Forever because there was kind of this, this sense of saying goodbye. Even though we lived in the same town, and even though we would still see each other, and even though 10th grade was not that far away, but there was this sense of having to say goodbye and celebrating it, but also with a twinge of sadness because of what it meant. These days, when we think about saying goodbye, we, you know, we say it kind of loosely because we know goodbyes are temporary. Uh, people are only a phone call away. There's the FaceTime technology and all these things that we use to keep in touch with people. In the season of graduations and weddings that seem to be upon us now, there's a lot of goodbyes that are said. But we know that they're somewhat temporary. And in those good, goodbyes, there's usually a, an aspect of celebration, and that celebration is sometimes mixed with sadness, uh, as we miss having the face-to-face presence of this person in our lives. So this morning, as we as we come to this passage at the end of Luke's Gospel, we get an account of Jesus saying goodbye to his followers. But it's a different kind of goodbye because Jesus is physically about to depart from them. He's physically going to ascend or go up into heaven. But here's the difference between Jesus' goodbye and the ones that we experience. You see, by leaving, by Jesus actually departing, he is going to draw closer to his disciples, and to us. We see here that Jesus leaves, and as he leaves his disciples, as he ascends into heaven, and we see this, that he actually draws near because he's going to leave them with something. He's actually going to leave them with himself. He's going to leave them with a message. He's going to leave them with the Holy Spirit. He's going to leave them with instructions. And then by ascending into heaven, as we'll look look later, we'll see how also he is still present with them, even though he has ascended. As we look at this passage this morning, as we think about what it looks like to respond to Jesus' final words on earth, we're going to look at this in three different categories. And the first we're going to see in this passage, the man or the God-man, who Jesus is and how he reveals that to his disciples. And then we'll look at the message that he gives us, what he has done for us and what our response is to be. And then finally, we'll look at the ministry that Jesus has called us to as his people and how he's equipped us to do that. So first, let's look at the man. Let's look at who Jesus is. Well, we see here that Jesus shows up in a room where the disciples are meeting. And this is not an organized session meeting by any sense of the word here. These disciples are just, they're scattered, they're a mess, they're hiding, because of what had happened, they're grieving over the death of Jesus. They're also, in a sense, kind of beginning to believe these reports that are coming into them about Jesus having risen from the dead, and that there's an empty tomb and all this stuff, and, and so they're, they're in this kind of conflict of emotions and not knowing what to do with themselves, and they're hiding in this locked room, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is there. And Jesus appears. Jesus appears. And he shows up, and they're, they're terrified, they're frightened. They think it's a ghost, but it's not. It's Jesus, risen from the dead, the Son of God, the Son of Man, right there in front of them, where they can see him, where they can touch him, where they can even hear him speak. He's right there in front of them. They can even watch him eat a nice seafood meal. See, Jesus enters the room. He enters their, into their confusion, into their fear. And he pronounces peace to them. I want you to think about that for a second. These, these disciples, they, these that are gathered in this room, they had left Jesus, right? Um, the, all the events of the crucifixion, the disciples scattered. Okay, There's Peter denying Jesus. There's other ones who are nowhere to be found. They had just deserted them. They were in hiding. Yet Jesus comes in. And he pronounces peace to them. And he then gently addresses their doubts and their fears. He invites them to look at his hands, to look at his feet, to touch him. And he says to them, hey, y'all, it's me. It, It is I myself. It's Jesus. The risen Christ, he lovingly meets the disciples and he demonstrates the forgiveness that later in this passage he will ask them to go out and proclaim. He demonstrates that forgiveness to them because He walks into that room and He proclaims peace to them. And then Jesus, as He so often does when you read through the Gospels, He asks them some pretty pointed questions. And in doing, and, and doing so here, He asks them about their doubts. And we're reminded here, first of all, that you know, who Jesus is, that He is both God and man. That he 's physically bodily present there with them, and he can also see into their very soul and knows what they're thinking. You see he asks them in the passage, "Why are you troubled?" and why do doubts arise in your hearts he 's seeing straight through through them, he knows what they're thinking, he knows what they're they 're feeling and so as we think about this passage and we think about this question that Jesus has asked we we kind of want to ask ourselves, well, what, what do we do with our, our doubts? What do we do with our questions? It's kind of trendy to doubt and to be skeptical about a lot of things these days. But it certainly is trendy to be doubtful about Christianity. I think sometimes we, we want to kind of boil it down to a set of intellectual questions that we might ask. But Jesus reminds us here that doubts are not simply intellectual questions. But they're a matter of the heart. The same question He posed to the disciples could be posed to us today. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? There are a lot of things that can move us toward doubt in this life. There's questions that come up as we encounter the brokenness of this world, as we encounter the brokenness of our own hearts, and we wonder, what is God doing? Where is Jesus in all of this? And sometimes maybe we want to kind of hide those doubts behind more sophisticated questions. But when we begin to peel those back, our doubts often reveal our fears and and reveal our reactions to the things that we've experienced in this life. So how do we answer Jesus' question? Well, Jesus, as he so often does, he asks a question and then he goes on to show us how to answer it himself. And he does so here by inviting his disciples and inviting us to look at him, to see that he is real, to see his wounds, to touch him. And in doing so, as Jesus did so many times during his life on earth, he's revealing who he is to his disciples. That he is fully God and fully man. That he did suffer and die for them and their sins. That he is their savior and ours. That he is the risen Lord. He gives them in response to their doubts. He gives them himself. And he speaks peace to our doubting hearts. He shows us the very wounds that heal us. And then he goes beyond that as the passage moves on. And he tells us that the scriptures themselves, the word of God, from start to finish, that these scriptures all have to do with him. And he opens their mind to understand his word. Think for a second about what this does for us as believers. That it is God who reveals himself, who opens our minds to understand his word. And he opens our hearts to receive his word. On one hand, this gives us confidence, doesn't it? That we can actually know God. And that we can actually understand his word that he has given to us. That we can actually apprehend it. Because he is the one who has opened our minds to do so. That brings confidence, but it also brings humility, doesn't it? That we know that we cannot grasp these things unless God has opened our eyes to do so. Unless he has opened our hearts and opened our minds to receive it. And that approaching the Scriptures and seeking to grow in God's Word is something that involves prayerful dependence upon God. Also, we see here the reminder that Jesus says that the Scriptures speak of Him and point us to Him. That if we're to understand the Scriptures, that we must go in expecting to find Jesus all throughout God's Word. In the Old Testament, we see the promise of a Messiah coming, a Redeemer coming to to rescue his people. And then in the New Testament, we see that promise fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection and coming again of Christ. Which brings us to our our second category, our second point today that we want to think through. And that's the message that Jesus has given us. See, we're to proclaim who he is and what he's done, that he suffered and and he died, he rose again from the dead. And in proclaiming who Jesus is and what he has done, there's an accompanying message that comes with that of what the gospel does in us and through us. That there is, as the passage tells us, verse 47, that there is repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name. That wherever the name of Jesus and what he has done is proclaimed, that the response that we're to have is to repent of our sins and to claim and proclaim the forgiveness of sins that is freely offered through Christ. This is the message that is preached through the entire Scriptures, in particular through the Gospels. And so we ask the question, well, what does this look like? What is repentance anyway? Well, the Shorter Catechism is helpful here. It reminds us that repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, being truly aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ, grieves for and hates his sins, and turns from them to God, fully intending and striving for a new obedience. So with repenting, there there is a turning that happens. It is coming to the end of ourselves and realizing that we are sinners and that there's nothing we can do to earn favor with God. And it's turning toward God to receive his mercy and as we've received his mercy, he invites us to walk in obedience to him, to love him, and to serve him. It's one thing to confess our sins, which we're called to do. A repentance takes it a step further. It is confessing our sins. It's acknowledging our sinful state before God. is pleading for and receiving his mercy. Yet then it's living in light of what he's done for us and walking in obedience to him. It's It's not simply stopping that which is wrong, but it's pursuing that which is good and right and true. So Jesus here gives us a message to proclaim. But this message is one that we must first claim for ourselves as his people. That Jesus died for me and for my sins. That he rose again, that I no longer live for myself, but I'm here to follow Jesus. Galatians 2.20, Paul puts it this way, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In 2 Corinthians 5, he puts it this way, that for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so there's this message of repentance, and it goes hand in hand with the claiming and proclaiming of the forgiveness of sins. If we go and tell people to repent, sometimes uh, if you drive through certain places, we'll just say in South Carolina, I won't say in Alabama, in South Carolina, if you drive through certain places, Sometimes you'll see people on the side of the road and they'll have a big sign up and it says, repent. Usually it's followed by, or go to hell or something like that. But it's just repent. But friends, if if we tell people to repent without proclaiming what Jesus has done and proclaiming the forgiveness of sins that's available through him, we're asking them to do what they cannot do. We're basically saying, hey, Turn, turn that thing around, okay? Do better. Turn your wife around. But when repentance is accompanied by forgiveness, we're saying God loves you so much that he gave his son to come and to live upon this earth righteously and to die upon the cross for your sins and to rise again. And he did it to bring you home where you belong, to forgive all of your sins, And He's done everything necessary for you to be fully forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. So come home. Come home forgiven and loved. So we must present these two things together, repentance and forgiveness. In the same way, if the message of forgiveness must be accompanied by the message of repentance. If we proclaim forgiveness, yet we don't show the way home, we can easily be saying, hey, it's it's cool, you're forgiven, just keep on keeping on, doing what you're doing, it'll be fine. But the gospel proclaims repentance and forgiveness together. That we would claim and proclaim that our sins have been forgiven by God because of the work of Christ on our behalf. And that we are repenting of our sins to follow him and live for him. This morning I want to ask you the question that we... We just looked at in our worship service from the catechism. What do you believe about the forgiveness of sins? Do you believe that your sins can be forgiven? Whatever you've done that you shouldn't have done, whatever you've left undone that you should have done, whatever pain you've caused others, or pain you've caused yourself, do you believe that your sins can be forgiven? This passage tells us loud and clear that in the name of Jesus, our sins can be forgiven. That he lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father. He fulfilled the law. He suffered and died, though he was innocent. He took our sins upon himself. And he defeated sin. And he defeated death by rising from the dead. And in suffering and dying for our sins, he provides everything necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. And he reconciles us to God. He makes us right with God. God is holy and just. He can't have sin in his presence. But through Jesus, we have access to God to be in his very presence now and for eternity. Because our sins have been fully paid for. And we've been declared righteous by his grace. Several years ago, I was on a youth retreat with a group of students. And this was a retreat we did every year. And we would go to uh, a place in western North Carolina. And as part of the retreat, we would usually go hiking. And we would often go hiking to this area of Lake Fontana, which is a beautiful place. And there was a portion of the water there where students, uh, at least until this particular year and I'm going to tell you about, would swim across the lake. And it, kind of, it was one of those things where you saw it and you saw the other shore. You kind of said, huh, I think I can get there. And you would get in the water, and then you'd get in the water and find out that it was actually kind of far. And one particular year, there was a student there on the trip, um, and he was a visitor with us. Uh, He actually uh, claimed to be an atheist, and uh, that still is probably true to this day. Um, This has been several years. But as he uh, he went across with some of the other students, and we noticed that the other student started coming back across, but he didn't, he didn't move. He stayed over there on the opposing shore. And so we're like, okay, what's he doing? He's kind of a prankster. So we're like, what's he got going on over there? Uh, what's he going to do with this? But then we eventually realized that he wasn't coming back and that he's just kind of over on that other shore. And so we're kind of wondering what we're going to do about this. And, you know, we weren't about to send someone to swim over and try to pull him back. But we were thinking about who was going to have to drive several miles around the lake to go and to find him and to pick him up. So he's over there, and we're all kind of sitting there trying to figure out what to do. Uh, He can't really, we can't really talk to each other. It's too far. So he's making hand signals, and we're making hand signals, and no one understands anything. But then eventually, we're sitting there, and after a few minutes, a boat shows up. And you need to know something. I went on this trip. For ten straight years, a couple of times we went twice. I never saw a boat in that part of the lake at that time of the year, except for this one time. And that boat shows up, and it goes over there, and it picks him up, and then you know he comes over, and everyone's kind of laughing uh, because oh look, he got a ride, and he must have been uh, you know angling for that the whole time. But I kind of knew something must be up because this guy's a good athlete; he's like a really good gymnast. He was, I knew he was a good swimmer. Like, why was he stuck on the other side? And later that later that evening, when we came back and we are around the campfire and that sort of thing, uh, I struck up a conversation with him to ask him, hey, you know, what, what was going on over there today? He started talking about how his, his muscles were cramping up and, you know, that he just, you know, knew that he wasn't going to be able to get back and that he just kind of found himself unable to get there and unable to move. And he kind of let the other students go because he kind of was embarrassed about it and didn't want to say anything to them. And then he said that he prayed for a boat to come. And I was like, bro, you're an atheist. Why are you praying? But then we started talking, and and then I I said to him, listen, you know, what, what you went through today from a physical standpoint of being stranded on that other side of the shore with no way to get back unless it was sent to you and unless someone came to rescue you. That is the spiritual state of us apart from Christ, that we're standing on the shore. We're, we're there. We're helpless. And there's no way for us to get back to him, that we're unable to cover that distance ourselves. And it's only by God's grace that we can be rescued, that we can be brought back home, that we can be brought to the proper shore. It's only by his grace. And he's done that through Jesus, who forgives our sins, who reconciles us to God through his life, death, and resurrection. Friends, this is the message that we claim and proclaim. Finally, as we look at our passage, there's a ministry that Jesus has called us to. What does repentance and forgiveness lead to? What does Jesus call us to? Here we see that as we're confronted with who Jesus is and what He's done, the message of His death and resurrection, that the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness moves God's people to worship and to witness. It brings about joy in the midst of doubt and despair. know, Jesus comes, He says goodbye here. He's ascending into heaven. He's going up into heaven. Yet the reaction of His disciples is one of great joy. When Luke's gospel began, in the very beginning of it, there's good news of great joy. As there's tidings to shepherds in the fields, right? The angels show up. They're announcing the coming of a Savior. And now as he departs, Jesus himself is giving good news for his people to proclaim. And there is still great joy. The gospel of Luke begins with God's people praising him in the temple, and that's how it ends too. Why is there so much joy when Jesus is leaving? Wouldn't it be kind of cool if he actually stuck around a little bit longer? Well, here we see that Jesus, though leaving in a physical sense, is still with them. He's sending the promised Holy Spirit to them. He's leaving in order to draw near to them and to us. He's departing in order to remain. The ascension, the going up of Jesus is good news for God's people. Because He goes to intercede for us at the right hand of God in prayer. He goes to prepare a place for us to be with Him forever. He goes in bodily form, the God-man, into heaven. And one day it is coming, He will take us redeemed, body and soul, with Him. And at the same time, as these things are true, He does not leave us alone. He gives us the Holy Spirit if the message of the incarnation of God in the flesh dwelling with us, if the message of that is that God is with us, then the message of the ascension of His going up is that God is still with us and He is actually in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. As one commentator put it, when Jesus was on earth, He was present with the church and now He is present in the church. and Now with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the message of who Jesus is and what He has done, He calls us here to go to the nations and to proclaim the good news. I said this morning, as we, as we go home with this, as we respond to it, what are we to do with this good news? Well, First, we, we claim and proclaim the message that Jesus has given us. First, we repent and believe that our sins are forgiven. In God's kingdom, we think of repentance in two ways. There's certainly a definite, definitive response of repentance when we first turn to Christ. We repent of our sins and trust in Him. Yet for the believer in Christ, repentance is an ongoing reality. It's something that we must always do because we still sin against God. That as Christians, we must continue to confess our sins and to acknowledge that it's by His mercy and grace that we can be right with Him and turn to Him to walk in His ways. In the same way, we can can say that our sins have been forgiven fully and finally because of what Christ has accomplished. And forgiveness is also an ongoing reality for the Christian because we still sin against God. And this forgiveness is readily applied to our sins. As those who claim forgiveness of sins this morning, another way we respond is to forgive others when they sin against you. It's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer and the response to God forgiving our sins is to sink down deep into who we are and what we do. Questions 3 puts it this way, to put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has to complain against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. Another thing to think about here is to be reminded that God has given us His Word, that He's revealed Himself to us in His Word, and that He is the one who opens our hearts and our minds to understand it and receive it. And therefore, we can approach His Word with confidence and humility because we're depending on the Holy Spirit. and We can begin to share His Word with one another and with others. Another thing here, in today, if, if you find yourself in a place of doubt, if you've got questions about Christianity and who Jesus is and what he's done and about God's word, we're reminded here to take your doubts and your troubles to Jesus and to seek him. Sometimes we see doubts and questions as a signal to go hide from God. but I think this passage, along with others in scriptures, reminds us that Jesus actually invites us to wrestle with doubts and to bring them. He wants you to bring your doubts to him. And for those doubts to be transformed to belief by faith in him. If you're struggling with doubts here this morning, know that you know, it's our desire here at Cornerstone for this to be a place where you can wrestle with doubts and you can ask questions. and We would love to walk with you and to, to enter into those questions with you as we seek to grow together. Finally, our, our final response here, and this is what we're going to do as we close, is let us worship with joy for all that Jesus has done for us. Let our worship be a, a prelude to the worship that will forever be happening in the new heavens and the new earth. As the forgiven and redeemed people of God from all places and all peoples and all nations and all races and all generations throughout all history, gather to praise Him. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. Please pray with me. Father, we have no greater need than for our sins to be forgiven. And so we thank you that through Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection that forgiveness is proclaimed through his name. And that we can Receive it, and we can be reconciled to you. So we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would help us this week to love and to sing and to wonder, to praise the Savior's name, and to rest in the forgiveness that he has accomplished for us, and to continually be repenting and renewing our trust in him who rescued us and saved us. And we ask your Holy Spirit to be at work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.